Hi, everyone. My name is Wilson Shirley, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute's The Bradley Lectures on the AEI podcast channel. The Bradley Lectures, given for over a quarter century at AEI beginning in September 1989, were sponsored by the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope to bring new life to this series by releasing them as podcasts for your enjoyment. In this episode, we're revisiting conservative internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan, by author and historian Henry Now, originally delivered at AEI in November of 2013. Two schools of thought typically emerge when Americans debate their place in the world, a realist nationalist school and a liberal internationalist school. In simple terms, they ask, are we to be fortress America or are we to be the world's policemen? Now posits a third school of thought, conservative internationalism, which he traces through four American presidencies. Combining critical parts of the other two schools, conservative internationalism affirms the objectives and values of the liberal internationalists with the means and purposes of the realist nationalists. We've seen the costs in blood and treasure of American retreat, as well as American overextension. This is a delicate balance to strike, and now shows that there is a tradition that has worked in America's past and could in our future. And with that, here's Henry Now on Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan. In some sense, my remarks this evening tries to build a big tent in which we can see how we all fit together, we all we conservatives fit together, even while we have significant differences that are also important and uh, usually, under most circumstances, productive. <clears throat> well, I, whenever I leave the academic world and speak, I'm always reminded of um, President Eisenhower's definition of an intellectual. He said, you know, those are guys who uh, talk an awful lot and use a lot of words to tell you more than they actually know. Um, I'm, I'm hoping now I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to uh, measure up to that uh, definition of, by Dwight Eisenhower. But let me start with a rather dire prediction, and it relates to this problem that we face currently of wanting to pull back. Uh, I think America is, right now, at this moment, making a huge mistake that will cost us dearly in both treasure and in blood in the not-too-distant future. Now, what do I mean? Well, we are repeating an historic pattern of overreach and then withdrawal. Ten years ago, the American people voted overwhelmingly to attack Afghanistan and Iraq. We forget those were rather significant majorities in those days. Today, they are voting overwhelmingly to hightail it home and never to put boots on the ground again in Syria or anywhere else. Now, this has happened many times before. It happened after World War I, after World War II, after Korea, and after Vietnam, and now again after Iraq and Afghanistan. Each time, by the way, that we have withdrawn, within a decade, we have been hit again by developments from abroad. The withdrawal was futile. If some people today think that our policemanship of the world is futile, the withdrawal is equally futile. What happened after, Pearl, uh, after our uh, isolationism in the 20s and 30s? Well, we know uh, Pearl Harbor happened. What happened after we turned over the world to the United Nations in 1945? Well, the Berlin blockade happened and the Cold War happened. What happened after the Korean War? Well, the Berlin Wall 
and the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, bringing us closer to Armageddon than any other crisis uh, in our history. And what happened after the Vietnam War? The Shah fell, Iran seized our hostages, and the Soviet Union established naval bases in Vietnam, projected military power for the first time in Africa, and invaded Afghanistan. Now, I would predict that is exactly what will happen again this time around. We will drift and retreat until the despots, not other democracies, as the Obama administration hopes, step up and become overconfident and do something foolish like attack us. That possibility, by the way, is being put into place right now in the al-Qaeda-controlled areas of Syria, of northeastern uh, Syria. Then we will go back in after we've been hit full bore at much higher cost than if we had intervened earlier and will eventually overextend ourselves again, repeating the pattern. Now, why do we do this over and over again? Well, I will argue it's because we lack a, the foreign policy tradition actually is there, it is there in history, but we lack an articulation of another foreign policy tradition, a third foreign policy tradition, uh, which keeps us in the world, I would argue, for a worthy cause at an acceptable cost. There are only two major foreign policy traditions in thinking about American foreign policy. The realist nationalist or nationalist realist tradition and the liberal internationalist position. Now the realist nationalist tradition tells us that our priorities are to stay strong, defend America, and get involved in world affairs only if we are attacked or severely threatened. Nationalists say wait until we're attacked or there is a substantial threat in this hemisphere, that is in the Western Hemisphere. They're particularly upset today by the fact that we still keep troops in Europe and Asia long after the Soviet threat has disappeared from those regions. Now that nationalist tradition, stay home, protect yourself in this hemisphere, uh, identifies with Andrew Jackson, the Monroe Doctrine, and of course the concept of Fortress America from the interwar period and to some extent uh, from the current period. Realists say get involved to preempt threats possibly in other hemispheres, that is to balance power in Europe and in Asia, but not to spread freedom, simply to make sure that no country in those regions becomes strong enough to attack us in this region. So it's a little bit more of a forward kind of defense of America, but it's largely still focused on security. Now that tradition identifies with geopolitics, great power competition, Teddy Roosevelt, and of course Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. The nationalist and realist traditionists generally urge us to be restrained in foreign affairs and to let others do more or if we have to intervene beyond this hemisphere to do so only to balance power uh, and essentially coexist with despots. Now the liberal internationalist tradition tells us to engage in foreign affairs, to spread freedom, promote human rights, stop genocide, foster economic development, build democratic institutions, and to do this before we are attacked, but to do it largely by creating international institutions that focus on common benefits and solve disputes by negotiations and compromise. Liberal internationalism believes that if nations cooperate with one another long enough, whether they are initially free countries or not, they will eventually become more pluralistic, tolerant, and ultimately democratic. It hopes eventually to replace the balance of power with global governance. And to that end, it advocates disarmament and eschews the use of force, except as a last resort after 
a, after all diplomatic and economic sanctions have been tried. Now, this tradition identifies with trade, diplomacy, Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the United Nations. This tradition, the liberal internationalist tradition, urges us to dive deeply into world affairs and to pursue interdependence, humanitarian intervention, economic development, common problem solving, eventually sharing our sovereignty with other nations in a world of centralized international institutions and law. And it expects to do much of that without having actually to use force, that is, to do, use relatively little force. These two traditions, I argue, are what yank us back and forth in world affairs. Realists and nationalists tend urging us to be cautious and to limit our interest to stability, uh, but not to be interested in the spread of freedom. Um, the liberal internationalist tradition urging us to spread freedom, but primarily by downplaying the role of force and cooperating with other nations. Now, the, 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 the back and forth between these traditions create uh, the cycling that I've been talking about. What do we do about it? Well, my book outlines a third tradition, which has always been there uh, in American history, intermediate between nationalism and realism on the one hand and liberal internationalism on the other. I call the tradition conservative internationalism, uh, and it too, as I suggest, is a part of our historical, of our historical experience. It's been generally neglected in the academic community and in the media, maybe in part because it is a conservative tradition. And as we know, the academy and the media are predominantly liberal. I've been a conservative in the academic community now for 50 years since I started my graduate studies. And I never heard of anything called conservative internationalism. I heard of nothing but liberal internationalism. So this is the time to begin to balance that scale. And in that sense, this book has been rumbling around in my head for 40 years. Now, conservative internationalism combines critical parts of the other traditions. And I wanted understood, I have nothing against the other traditions. They, they, they play a very important role in the debate. I'm trying, however, to construct a tradition that I think uh, is there in our history and can keep us engaged in world affairs, ultimately at less cost than when we engage in this cycle of constant overextension and retreat. Combines three three elements from the other tradition. It affirms the objectives of liberal internationalism, namely to spread freedom, with the means and instruments of realism, namely military strength, for the purposes of nationalism, namely to preserve a world of decentralized institutions in which sister democratic republics retain their national sovereignty and live side by side with independent military capabilities in peace. A world, in short, with a Second Amendment guarantee for nations, the right of nations to bear arms in a world of democratic peace, just as we insist upon the right of individuals to bear arms in a democratic republic such as our own. Now, how is this possible? Let me explain conservative internationalism in five steps and give you examples of each step from the foreign policies of the four presidents I study. Now, I may... Uh, uh, concentrate on Ronald Reagan because that's my ne next book, which I've already started on. But there are marvelous examples of these same tendencies uh, that I identify with conservative internationalism in the policies of other presidents, many of them, by the way, that we know very little about, like James Polk, which is unfortunate. Also reminds me of how important it is for conservatives to be involved in the legacy battle, that is, the battle over the legacy of different presidents. Polk, of course, you know, was a uh, limited government president, 
uh, and to some extent, therefore, much less uh, sympathetic uh, to in the academic world than I would like to see him be. First, what do I mean by conservative? All right. Uh, second, what do I mean by internationalism? Third, what do I mean by armed diplomacy, which, by the way, is the subtitle of the book? Fourth, how does conservative international set priorities for an armed diplomacy? All right, to spread freedom that has the best chance of achieving peace and that avoids going overboard and burdening, um, overburdening the American public with long wars and endless casualties. Fifth, how does conservative internationalism use diplomacy after force, just as it uses force with diplomacy, how does it use diplomacy after force to compromise, uh, for compromise, to cash in military leverage for settlements that do not necessarily defeat the adversary in a conventional military sense, but weaken it uh, and move the needle uh, uh, towards greater global freedom? Now, Polk is going to be my example uh, of that particular capability, even though uh, Ronald Reagan is also a very good example. First, what do I mean by conservative? Now, this is, this is a bit confusing at first, because in one sense, all Americans are liberals. That is, they are classical liberals. Louis Hartz once wrote a book some 60 years ago, a seminal book called The Liberal Tradition in America. If the academy had been conservative, he would have entitled it the, the classical liberal, the classical liberal tradition in America. Because he argued, and I think he was right, that both American parties are liberal in the sense that they are wedded to individual liberty enshrined in the Bill of Rights and to political equality enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. They are classical liberals in the spirit of John Locke and Adam Smith. Now, as a result, Hartz pointed out that there were and are no pre-enlightenment reactionary parties on the right in America, like fascist parties in Europe, or post-enlightenment radical parties on the left in America, like communist parties in Europe. European parties, while European parties lurched right and left over the past 200 years, American politics for the most part, even in, through the course of a civil war, remained remarkably centrist. We should remember that today when we bemoan polarization in American politics. Compared to Europe's experience, the two American parties are not that far apart from one another, and partisanship in America generally plays out in the center of the political spectrum. We have a strong classical liberal party in this country. It's called the Republican Party. They don't in Europe, unfortunately. It got shattered uh, through several wars uh, in the course of European history. It's one reason, by the way, I think we have some difficulties communicating with Europeans, especially Republicans. Uh, they have very small liberal parties in the middle of their political spectrum, people who believe in the free market and in libertarian principles. We have a big one, and we ought to keep it big because someday maybe it will influence uh, Europe and bring back some of the center parties in Europe. Now, I don't mean to say that Europe is on the fringes today, because what's happened is the two fringe parties in Europe have now joined hands, you know, uh, in a death lock over the center, because they never want anything to happen again like that which happened in Europe uh, in the 20th century. American conservatives and American liberals, however, differ in two very important ways. Right? American conservatives have remained classical, or I like to say Republican with a little r, liberals. All right, while American liberals have become more communitarian, or they have become social liberals. And we differ now on two dimensions. First, we differ on the relative emphasis that we place on individualism versus equality. 
Conservatives are more, more committed to individualism and limited government, even if it means greater social inequality in outcomes. Conservatives want outcomes above a minimal threshold that reflect different endowments of individual talents, energy, and heritage. Liberals are more committed to social equality and an activist government towards that end, even if it means at times greater restrictions on personal liberty. Liberals object to outcomes that increase inequality, whether or not they are earned by risk-taking and hard work. Conservatives support equality of opportunity, full stop. Liberals support equality of results. Second, conservatives and liberal differ on, differ on the, liberals differ in the relative emphasis that they place on the role of tradition versus reason in human affairs. Conservatives are more skeptical about the nature of human reason and knowledge, particularly when it's applied to social affairs. They doubt that you can perfect government or human society primarily by rational planning and policy making. As a result, conservatives see a much greater role for tradition, religion, and virtue in human deliberations. Liberals, by contrast, are more positivist about human knowledge and optimistic that science and expertise can improve and even perfect uh, policy making and human society. For liberals, society is ultimately objective, like nature. For conservatives, society can never be wholly objective because we are studying ourselves. We study things we like or dislike, such as labor unions or tea parties. Uh, physicists don't study things that they like or dislike. They study quarks uh, or planets. Uh, so for conservatives, you can't really ever achieve the degree of objectivity that uh, you aspire to in the physical sciences. And other factors, moral factors, uh, that I've mentioned, religion, tradition, virtue, are going to play a bigger role. Now, the next slide <clears throat> shows these differences graphically. Um, and you will see that conservatives cluster in sort of the lower left-hand corner with a much greater commitment to liberty and limited government and tradition, virtue, uh, religion uh, 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 in, in, in human affairs. Liberals will cluster in the upper right-hand corner of the, um, of, of the diagram, much more committed to reason. Uh, and I see I didn't quite get science on the, I didn't extend that box, but that should be reason slash science. Now, you know, in the other boxes, you get some combinations of, of liberalism and conservatism. I don't need to go into that. Um, but it's, um, we, we, we know that they're libertarians on both sides of the political spectrum in America. We also know that there are sort of people, uh, conservatives who are somewhat more activist government than most conservatives. I call these reform conservatives. Uh, and we also know that there are some liberals, especially religious liberals, and here I'm thinking of many in the black American community, um, who are eager to see government play a role, but for the purpose of uh, conservative values and conservative reforms. Now you can take this diagram and stretch it down to the left and you can identify contemporary groups of Republicans, uh, of conservatives, all right, who uh, also differ internally in terms of the degree to which they are committed to these uh, two dimensions. Um, um, and um, I, I'm, again, there's no need to go into this, but I just want to suggest to you that this is a way of both identifying our differences internally in the conservative community and a way, based on that previous graph, graphic, a way of understanding how we differ from liberals, 
I do have a graph here too, you can look at it later if you want, which tries to sort of do the same thing for liberal Democrats. That is, it stretches the diagram or the graphic on up to the upper right and kind of gives you some idea how some of the Democrats differ from one another. Again, based on these two dimensions. By the way, um, most liberals will agree with this diagnosis. I've had no objections from any of my liberal colleagues about this uh, distinction between conservatives and, and liberals. In fact, they criticize us precisely on these two dimensions. They say that limited government is out of style because you've got a complex society, you need more government, and they complain that uh, uh, conservatives, of course, are too traditionalist and are not uh, committed to uh, you know, the pursuit of, uh, of scientific uh, methods uh, in the same to the same degree that they are. Now, let me go on to my second point. Um, and I'll, I'll, by the way, uh, I should say, however, before I do that, um, um, these domestic distinctions are very critical for foreign policy. And normally they are not included in thinking about foreign policy. Why are they relevant for foreign policy? Well, for one thing, because the commitment, because of their commitment to limit government, conservatives do not support central international institutions any more than they do national institutions at home, that is, any more than they do big government at home. They harbor little enthusiasm for international institutions, not because UN helicopters are about to swoop in and seize our territory, but because centralized governments anywhere inevitably pose a threat to individual freedom, and especially international institutions that are not under the supervision or scrutiny of legislatures. Conservatives prefer federalism at, the, at home and very loose associations abroad, namely a world of sister democratic republics, as I've just mentioned, which, which Jefferson envisioned. Uh, not a world of centralized institutions such as Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt envisioned. Jefferson was really quite uh, interesting on this point because he said, you know, in connection with new, with new states that might uh, join the Union from the Louisiana Purchase, he said the following, uh, quote, keep them in the Union if it be for their good, but separate them if it be better, end quote. So Jefferson was... Um, thinking in terms of very loose associations between new states that might emerge, whether they were federal states or nation states, here on this continent, giving us that early vision of what a democratic peace might look like, right? and which, of course, today prevails in the Atlantic community. Now, secondly, because of their commitment to tradition, religion, and virtue, conservatives do not think that the advance of liberty is just a matter of time, something that's going to happen automatically as science and modernization progress and, and slowly civilize, if not democratize, all peoples. They are less sanguine uh, than liberals that free trade and economic prosperity will bring about political freedom through lots of international cooperation and little need for the use of force. Conservatives see the advance of liberty more as a moral struggle, all right? not just a military and economic struggle, uh, and one that ultimately is going to have to be, is going to have to include uh, the responsible use of force in relationships with despots. Jefferson was uh, the classic conservative internationalist on this count. He made a comment in his first uh, inaugural address, which, by the way, Ronald Reagan repeated re over and over again, included it in a letter to Brezhnev already in April of 1981, uh, included a paraphrase of it in his inaugural address. And here's what Jefferson said. It's a, I think I've always thought conservative institutions everywhere ought to have this on their banner. Quote, sometimes it is said that man cannot be trusted with the government of himself. Can he then be trusted with the government of others? End quote. 
there's the concept of if we don't have people who can govern themselves at the level of families and communities, local institutions, um, why would we ever want them governing us at the national level? So you build from the bottom up. It's a concept which is extremely important and still important today. And don't let people tell you that you know, the small government, big government distinction is no longer relevant. Yes, it is relevant in just precisely this sense that we're looking for a community that is built from the bottom up, not one that is steered from the top down. And Jefferson also put the public square above science. He also believed, in other words, that issues ought to be resolved by the people and not by the experts. And he made this wonderful comment in his inaugural, quote, if there be among us, if there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union, that means advocate treason, or to change its republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments to the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. He genuinely believed in debate, in argumentation. He believed in education, by the way, wanted to be remembered as the founder of the University of Virginia, more so than as the president of the United States, but believed that if you gave people that uh, education, they knew best, all right, by arguing these issues out in the public square. You don't have to resort to the experts or rely on the experts. And one glaring example of that for Jefferson was, of course, the Alien and Sedition Acts. You know, legislation, by the way, passed by the majority in the United States at that time, who put 300 of his journalistic supporters in jail, not a one of the Federalist journalists. Um, and, you know, you might have thought that, boy, he would go after that law with everything he had. But he didn't. He, he said, look, uh, he, didn't. he never challenged the constitutionality of it. And the reason was, he said, listen, the elections of 1800 and 1804 have taken care of it. The American people have taken care of it. They've made a decision. So there was a classic case of how I think conservatives genuinely would like to see most issues resolved in that public square, not in the back rooms of you know, either um, courts. I understand we have courts and you have to have um, um, uh, decisions by courts and so on. But I think there is a greater preference on the part of uh, conservatives still for the open public square. Now, let me go to the next uh, uh, second point, Na internationalism. What do I mean by that? Well, generally, here I'm addressing the question of whether foreign policy is primarily about defense and security, uh, or is it about freedom and the spread of democracy? Now, you could say it's about both. Of course it is. But Americans differ on the relative emphasis that they place on these two factors. This is a big divide between the nationalists and the realists, on the one hand, who say it's mostly about security, and the liberal internationalists, on the other hand, who say it's mostly about spreading freedom. Also a big divide, including today, uh, within the Republican Party. So the question is, how do we um, reconcile uh, this question of the degree to which we should be interested in the security of America and as opposed to interested in spreading freedom beyond America? Now here, Ronald Reagan is, at least for me, uh, a good model, all right, because he uh, did not accept either one of these positions. That is, he didn't accept the realist position that we should not be concerned about freedom abroad. He criticized the Kissinger, you know, the Nixon-Kissinger policy for being amoral or immoral. Uh, nor did he, of course, accept the Jimmy Carter view that somehow or other our purpose was simply to cooperate, detente, get along with the Russians, and eventually somehow or other the Russians would, 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 would mellow. Now, Reagan brought something different to the table, and this, by the way, 
uh, is an argument by John Lewis Gaddison. I think he's absolutely right. What Reagan brought to the table is the, the need to weaken the domestic regime in the Soviet Union, weaken the domestic system in the Soviet Union. In other words, the purpose of both defense and of cooperation or detente is to ultimately change the character of regimes in the world, move the needle of freedom in the world towards more democratic regimes and fewer despotic regimes. Now, how do you do that, all right? Well, Reagan said, look, first you take, you take a very solid nationalist position. That is, first you recognize that freedom starts in America and that if we lose freedom in America, where do we go? Where do you escape to? He actually told the Republican Convention in 1964 uh, that made that point. Quote, if we lose freedom here in America, there is no place to escape to, end quote. So you've got to start here. You've got to be concerned first about freedom here. Uh, and I have my students read a wonderful book by Walter McDougall, great historian at the University of Pennsylvania, called Promised Land, Crusader State. And McDougall is, in fact, a good solid. He's one of the best nationalists I've, I read in, in trying to understand that tradition. Uh, nothing pejorative in my use of the term nationalist, by the way. You'll also see that in the book. Uh, it's an admirable tradition. And uh, he starts his whole book with a chapter on liberty at home, and he ends the book with a chapter on a delightful spot. He never gets very far from America. He's really focused on America. Uh, and so was Ronald Reagan. And so must we be if we are interested in freedom. Reagan, but Reagan also understood that America wasn't unique and that freedom did not stop at the water's edge. He understood that we were more than just one republic, liberty at home, and more than just one piece of geography, a delightful spot. We also represented, in Lincoln's words, the last best hope on earth. In Fulton, Missouri, in 1952, here's what Reagan told the graduating class at Wilbur Wood College. Quote, America is less a place than an idea. The idea of the dignity of man, the idea that deep within the heart of each of us is something so godlike and precious that no individual or group has a right to impose his or her will upon the people, end quote. Reagan also warned us that as an idea, the United States could not be indifferent to the great moral struggle taking place across the landscape of world history. All right? He told the National Association of Evangelicals in March 1983 the following, quote, I urge you to beware of the temptation of pride the assumption of blithely declaring yourself above it all and label both sides, he was talking about the US and the Soviet Union, as equally at fault, and thereby to remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. He never flinched from standing up for freedom wherever he went. Uh, and he talked about freedom in a way that related to the culture in which he was, uh, uh, in which he was speaking. Uh, but he never flinched. He said in Shanghai, uh, he, we believe in the dignity of every individual. He said in Moscow, he actually asked the Soviet government, when are you going to recognize that if you want creativity and prosperity in your economy, you're going to have to recognize the source of creativity and prosperity in, our econ in your economy, and that's the uh, individual. Uh, and you're going to have to let that individual know that you respect them, uh, and that you do by giving them their full rights. 
Now, he said all of this in 1988 when he was supposed to be, you know, a nice guy, giving up the notion that, uh, that the Soviet Union might have been a little bit evil. He still, he dealt with it differently, but he still dealt with the differences, and he still stood up for freedom. So he knew that we couldn't ignore freedom abroad if we're serious about it here at home. And I want you to think about this. I think the two are inextricably linked. That is, the future of freedom here and the future of freedom abroad. In this way, when we neglected freedom abroad in the 1920s and 1930s, American freedom suffered. The Ku Klux Klan peaked in America in the 1920s and 30s. Five million members and white-sheeted wizards marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, 30,000 strong in a brazen blizzard of bigotry. You can see those pictures on the internet. On the other hand, when we cared about the freedom of the world, when we cared about freedom in the world after World War II and rescued Europe from totalitarianism, we made more progress on civil rights at home than at any time since the Civil War. So I don't think these two are antithetical. I don't think they subtract from one another. I think we've got to be concerned about them both. And so I would, that's the message I would sort of convey uh, to our own um, nationalists and realists who will always be more cautious, and that's good, uh, because we'll see in a minute we need to be disciplined in this commitment to freedom abroad, but I don't think we can escape it in any way without actually losing our freedom here at home. Now, if internationalism is um, the way to go, um, I come to my third point, which is that for serious, we're going to have to arm our diplomacy. And why is that? That's for one simple reason, because despots arm their diplomacy. And we're dealing in a world with despots. We're not dealing in a world with, with Democrats. So let me uh, uh, um, flesh out this third point. Uh, I'm talking now and throughout the book, when I talk about military force, I'm talking not just about military intervention. I'm also talking about the use of military force to build up defense, peace through strength, and I'm also talking about the deployment of forces, the timely deployment of forces in order to influence the balance of power and, their influ and therefore influence military uh, calculations, even without necessarily using military force. But I'm not talking about economic sanctions, and I'm not just talking about diplomatic um, isolation. Liberal internationalists are very clear about when force should be used in diplomacy. They argue that force should be used only as a last resort after all non-military measures have been exhausted. Now, they believe in the use of force. Don't get me wrong. If the Americas attacked, all of the traditions want to defend America. Right? But in situations before an attack, liberal internationalists generally prefer uh, to reserve the use of force as a last resort. They want to start with shared or common interests. They want to start with diplomacy. Uh, they want to build trust in that context, uh, and so they want to refrain from the use of force because that destroys trust, that disrupts negotiations. Right? So their inclination is to say, let's try to deal with this um, rationally across the table from one another, and okay, there's a threat of force always in the background, but uh, we can make progress without having to resort to the use of force. Now, all of that would be well and good if we were dealing with other Democrats. After all, we settle, pro we settle problems in this country and we settle problems with other countries in the democratic world without resort to military force. We have all sorts of rules and institutions and negotiations that bring us together. Uh, but in fact, 
we aren't doing that internationally. Uh, we are dealing with despots who use force daily, all right, and uh, will certainly, in order to stay in power at home, and will certainly use force against us if they get a chance. Reagan used to always tell that to us at small meetings. He said, my gosh, they did that. He says, just think if they do that to their own people, what they'll do to us if they get the chance. He was making that point, that we're dealing with some pretty tough customers out there. Now, they believe, that is, despots believe in using force before and during negotiations, not just after negotiations fail. And if you give them the idea that you're not going to use force until the negotiations are over, they'll keep you in negotiations forever until they have achieved their objectives outside negotiations by force. Think of Iran today. Good example of what I think Iran is up to. They're making progress on all of their objectives outside the negotiations while they do everything they can to keep us involved in negotiations. And if we believe that, in fact, you can only use force as a last resort, uh, we're going to be drawn into that kind of endless negotiations. Pretty soon they'll wind up with nuclear weapons and maybe control of, or at least significant influence in Iraq, and who knows, maybe even, uh, um, um, you know, a new ally, uh, or, or uh, I, who knows how the situation in Syria will turn out, but clearly their influence is expanding in, in, in Syria at this point, the Iranian influence is. So uh, in these circumstances, we have to arm our diplomacy. Now, um, um, and use it before as well as during negotiations. George Shultz once said, it's better to use force when you should rather than when you must. He said, using it as a last resort means no other option. And by that time, the level of force and the risk involved may have multiplied many times over. So while conservative internationalism does advocate the use of armed diplomacy, the use of force early, it may in the end not advocate as much force as, you, as, as the liberal internationalists may have to use. Because at the end, they're going to be dealing with a situation that has significantly deteriorated like the one today in Syria. And they're going to have to use that much more force after negotiations fail. Force use serves three purposes in negotiations. Right? And here Reagan was a genius in terms of his understanding of how to do this. By the way, a really great negotiator. I think in time Reagan's going to be recognized as a man who had a lot of experience in negotiations, understood them, and really had a grasp of how you negotiate. Uh, first of all, force is a means before negotiations to get your adversary's attention and to set the agenda. And this, was what, this is what Reagan was about with his buildup of, of the American defense program and with his buildup of, uh, with his revival of the American economy. He wanted to say to the Soviets, hey, listen, you better take account of us. We're, we're here. We're back. He said it. America is back. All right, so long before you even get into negotiations, you've gotten your adversary's attention. Secondly, force is critical as leverage on the ground while you're negotiating. That is, when someone like Iran or the Soviet Union pushes back on the ground or pushes on the ground with force to try to achieve their objectives outside negotiations, you have means for pushing back and blocking them. This was, of course, Ronald Reagan's freedom fighters. This is why he supported uh, the Contras in Central America, the Mujahideen in, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, he, was in, he intended to tell the Soviets that, listen, we're, we're gonna, you, know, you try to gain some influence or some advantage outside uh, these negotiations in various parts of the world, we'll push back. You're going to have to deal with us or, or our proxies. Um, and uh, he also pushed back, by the way, on the deployment of the INF weapons. The Soviet Union was just moving blithely ahead, unilaterally deploying SS-20s. Uh, Reagan said, okay, you want to do that in Eastern Europe? We'll do that in Western Europe. 
So a, a very, a complete, you know, Reagan really had a comprehensive program for, for, for blocking Soviet progress outside the negotiations, getting the Soviets' attention through his arm, armaments buildup and through the revival of the American economy, and thirdly, using force then as leverage in negotiations. He knew and he stated as early as uh, 1982 in an NSC meeting that the Soviets wouldn't negotiate SS-20s uh, until we deployed INF. And he was completely right because they had SS-20s, we had nothing. We had to deploy the, SS, the INF and, and then sure enough, the Soviets came around. Eventually we eliminated that entire category of, of, of weapons. He also used st the Strategic Defense Initiative very effectively in negotiations. They were, it was not, however, for trade-off in Reagan's mind uh, uh, because it would, it, he, he hoped it would succeed and, and it could be shared. Now there's, a, there's a, by the way, a whole series of thoughts on the part of Ronald Reagan that need to be much more thoroughly explored than they have been. But for Reagan, that was going to be the way in which we would deter after we reduced offensive nuclear weapons to zero or close to zero. Then we would have shared defensive systems, big defensive systems, protecting us against a few small offensive systems that might reemerge somewhere. A mutual assured protection instead of a mutual assured destruction. A great idea. He articulated that idea. I heard him talk about it. But, you know, a lot of work wasn't done on it. And uh, one can wonder how he thought we were going to transfer or share the SDI technology. Gorbachev just told him at some point at Reykjavik, Mr. President, I don't believe you. And Gorbachev was probably right. Reagan was talking about a Baruch plan. Uh, was talking about international institutions sharing this technology. Why would Gorbachev have thought that international institutions would be fair in, in, in the distribution of that technology any more than Stalin thought the Baruch plan would be fair in the distribution of that technology? So a lot of unanswered questions here, but boy, Reagan was on the right track. He was on the right track, and of course, he, he startled the entire arms control world uh, with some of these ideas. All right. Um, here in the next slide, I summarize the second and third points that I've just made. You can get some idea of how you can think of these traditions in terms of their relative emphasis on, uh, that should be, I don't know why that isn't coming up, but anyway, on the, their relative emphasis on security and then at the bottom spreading democracy, all right, as the objectives of foreign policy. And then their relative emphasis on the use of force, this is the horizontal axis, or the use of diplomacy, all right, as the principal means of American foreign policy. And you see slots here that where the three known traditions, nationalism, realism, and liberal internationalism, very nicely fit. But then there's a big empty box over in the lower left-hand corner, uh, which is, of course, the tradition of conservative internationalism, which I am trying uh, to define and to um, project. But look, let's be realistic. If we're going to aim for the spread of freedom abroad, and if we are going to arm our diplomacy to do that, aren't we going to get in trouble again? Now you hear the realists, and very rightly so, who say, wait a minute, you're going to really you know, tax our capabilities beyond what we can achieve. There's a gap here between our objectives and any reasonable level of capabilities to achieve them. So wait a minute, guys, don't take us down that road, all right? Well, in order to deal with that realist objection, that very real realist objection, I come to my fourth point in the, establish, in, in the conceptualization of conservative internationalism. And that is uh, conservative internationalism sets clear priorities about when to use force and about when to couple that use 
with the pursuit of democracy. And it says you prioritize the defense and spread of democracy by giving countries on the border, on the borders of existing democratic societies, priority over countries in regions remote from existing democracies. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are two main fault lines of freedom in the world today. They lay along the borders of existing freedom in Europe, between the free countries of Europe and Russia to the east, and the borders of China in Asia, between China on the one hand and the free countries of Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan on the other. Now, these borders are the real battle lines of freedom, I argue. So if you're thinking about Central Europe, it's countries like Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Turkey, critical country in the battle for freedom over the long run. Um, much more so, you see, than countries that are tucked away in remote regions like Afghanistan. I'll come back to that point in a minute. But this is where the real battle is going on. Uh, similarly in uh, Asia, a lot of things are happening on the Korean Peninsula today and in South Korea. I wonder if we're paying any attention. Uh, because it's absolutely critical what happens in Korea and on that peninsula when, in fact, change comes. And it will come. Eventually, that regime can't last forever. What will it be? Will it be a Korea that then is largely under the influence of China? Or will it be a united Korea that will be largely under the influence of the United States? Very critical borders. There's a third border, but I think it's somewhat secondary just because democracy and freedom are so limited in the Middle East, but it's the borders around Israel. Right? So think of it maybe as those three borders of uh, freedom. Now, when threats arise along these borders, the United States not only defeats the threats, but the United States also goes in and pursues democracy. That is, it stays for the long term in terms of helping those countries to eventually make the transition to democracy. So, for example, in Turkey, in Ukraine, this ought to be a long-term commitment. We should be reminding the American people that it's a long-term commitment. It's a struggle going on today between NATO and Russia, between the European Union and the so-called Eurasian uh, Union, economic union, uh, for the heart and soul of Ukraine. Um, and that's an incredibly important battle. There's a battle going on in Turkey between the evolving sort of democratic institutions of Turkey. And, and let's face it, Turkey's a little bit further along in that battle, at least until recently, than Egypt is. All right? And the resurgence now of uh, Islam and of Islamic thinking and of theocratic thinking and potentially of thinking in the Erdogan government uh, that um, they will never let themselves be voted out of office by free and fair elections. I mean, that's obviously, of course, the sine qua non of being a democracy. So we should have our, our eyes focused like a laser beam on these countries. Uh, uh, and when, as I say, threats occur there, we not only deal with the threats, we stick around for the long term. It's what we did in Germany and Japan, by the way. They were on the borders of existing freedom, and it worked. That, we can generate. Why do you do this? You do it for two reasons. It's cheaper to develop democracy there because you've got the powerful magnets of neighbor, neighboring democratic countries. All right, that can have an enormous impact like the European Union. Uh, and secondly, you do it because if you lose the battle there, it's going to have much greater consequences, negative consequences for freedom than if you lose it in Afghanistan, right? or if you lose it in Burma, or you lose it in Mongolia. Um, now, what do you do if there are threats that emerge from regions that are remote from these borders? Well, clearly you go in and take care of the threats. 
And we had every reason in the world to go into Iraq, and I still believe also into Iraq, I mean into Afghanistan, and also I believe into Iraq, in order to deal what we perceived at the time to be very real threats. Uh, but you don't stick around for 10, 20, 30 years to try to build a perfect democracy. These countries are remote from other democratic countries. The costs are going to be much higher. Uh, the, the cultures are much different. Uh, and you're going to have a much more difficult time. It seems to me that we could learn something from, you know, the Vietnam and now the Iraq and the Afghanistan uh, experiences, and that is, look, when you face a threat in these countries, by golly, go in and take care of the threat. We had to get rid of the Taliban government. We had to put something in its place. But then don't assume that you've got the perfect solution. Get out so that maybe in two or three years, if you need to go back in again, you can, all right? And you kind of ratchet these governments maybe towards some kind of greater openness and pluralism. But you don't stick around for 10 or 12 years uh, and leave behind country, uh, governments which are no stronger. They're no stronger than the governments we would have left behind had we gotten out of Afghanistan or Iraq in 2006, 2007, or 2008. Now, again, I'm, I, my druthers would be to stick it out, but I'm trying to find some discipline here that, that accords with the sense of the American public. They've never gone for these long wars of drip, drip, drip casualties, all right, where, where, they, where the countries were, where the threats were in remote regions, all right, and where there wasn't a kind of over, there wasn't a looming uh, threat of, of the Soviet Union sort of standing over the entire uh, process, as there was in the case of Germany and Japan. Now, Reagan was extremely good on this. He understood that the central threat to freedom was in Central Europe, not in Lebanon, or not in Afghanistan, or not in Central America. And therefore, he kept his powder dry in most of those conflicts because he wanted that powder available if he needed it in Central Europe. And believe me, some people today make Reagan out to be someone who loved to build up power but never to use it. Well, he scared the heck out of them. Most of those people who are saying that today were scared to death that he was going to use it back then. Uh, he was going to use his power, but only where it counted. He said to Cap Weinberger in the summer of 1981, Cap, can we do anything about these Soviet divisions that are mobilizing? There were 20, 25 Soviet divisions that were, you know, blinking off and on on the Polish border uh, that entire year, all right, before Poland imposed martial law in December of 81. Cap Weinberger looked at him and said, no, Mr. President, we don't have any capabilities. You know what Reagan said? He looked at Weinberger and he said, listen, Cap, I don't ever want to be in that position again. You make sure I have a capability. All right, if I face that position, if I, fa if I face that situation, you know, a couple of years down the line. So here was a clear, hard-headed sense of where the priorities were. And yeah, then don't, don't, don't fire your bullets elsewhere. Don't get entangled elsewhere, all right, where it could cost you dearly and distract you, distract you from the major, um, from the major uh, uh, threats that you face. Um, in some way, we have actually, in the last decade, we've done just the reverse. That is, we have over-concentrated our attention on these threats from remote regions, and we have actually neglected the threats that have been gathering um, um, severity uh, along the borders of existing freedom. Ukraine today is weaker than it was five years ago. Turkey is weaker today than it was five years ago. I think even South Korea is a little bit more in jeopardy. Now its major economic partner is China, and things are happening there, and discussions are going on there that, 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 that um, I think we need to be concerned about. Um, so um, it's important. It's incredibly important for us to have some priorities and to discipline the uh, use of armed diplomacy um, with those priorities. All right? Lastly, 
And finally, and also very importantly, we, a, a big part of conservative internationalism is also to try for peace. You know, we're not trying for war. We don't want war. Reagan didn't want war. He was willing to take some risks with armed diplomacy, but his objective was peace. And so to get peace, you need to be in a position from time to time to compromise and to pick your time uh, to compromise. Now, Reagan didn't want to compromise when he was weak, but after he improved his capabilities, he was ready to compromise. Cash in your military assets, all right, for diplomatic solutions. Now, um, and he did just that. The president who was really a genius in that was Polk, James Polk. He escalated the use of force. He threatened and then escalated the use of force four times in the war with Mexico. First time, by the way, force was simply a backup. He hoped to purchase uh, the territories. And he made a, uh, you know, what, what most historians agree is a fair offer uh, for those territories. But every time he approached the Mexicans, first with the purchase offer and then later with additional escalations in the use of force, he sent a diplomatic envoy to Mexico City to tell him, here's what I want, here's what I'd like. And he kept trying to negotiate a, um, uh, a diplomatic solution coupled with his determined use of military force. I think it was because he did that that we got out of Mexico and that Polk got out of Mexico in a quite remarkable way. In February of 1846, we were in control of Mexico City. We could have occupied Mexico for God knows how long, just like we occupied Iraq for too long. Uh, but Polk understood he had gotten what he wanted in a, in, a, in a treaty, by the way, negotiated by an envoy, his last envoy that he sent to Mexico City, who had violated his instructions. And three months earlier, he had fired him, Nicholas Trist. But Trist stayed on. When he came up with an agreement that gave Polk his bottom line, Polk grabbed it, even though the All-Mexico movement was in Congress saying, no, 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 we're going to stay. We want the whole thing. And he put a great deal of effort for two or three weeks into passing that treaty through Congress. Uh, he succeeded, by the way, with votes that didn't reflect sectional differences. They actually overrode sectional, sectional differences. Um, and he had American forces out of Mexico City by July. Imagine in six months there wasn't an American boot left in Mexico. Well, there's some lessons there. I understand the world has changed. Uh, but there's some lessons there. And I would compare it to, for example, George W. Bush uh, and his, not his decision to invade Iraq, but his decision or his lack of decision to know exactly what we were going to do when we got there and how quickly we were going to get in and out. He had most military leverage, by the way, in 19, I mean, in 2003. You know, he didn't really start to use it until 2006, 2007, when he tried to convene a Middle East peace negotiator. By that time, it was too late. All right, that's conservative internationalism. Limited government and moral struggle, not through international organizations uh, and not a sort of um, expectation of living indefinitely with uh, coexisting indefinitely with, with despotic forces. Internationalist, we must in fact be concerned about freedom abroad, otherwise we're not really serious about freedom at home. Arming diplomacy, but arming diplomacy in order to try to achieve both freedom and peace. Disciplining, therefore, armed diplomacy, all right, by setting clear priorities. Using a little force early uh, in order to avoid using a lot more force later. Uh, and then being willing to trade off military leverage when it's at its peak, when you can get the most for it, and then go back for the rest, as Reagan used to always say, the next day. Now, if we had this option in our quiver, if we had this tradition 
um, as part of our general thinking about foreign policy in uh, uh, argumentation with the realists, the nationalists, and the liberal internationalists, I think we might have a better chance of stopping the cycling uh, that uh, has been going on for quite a while in American foreign policy, and that ultimately undermines our ability to be an effective ongoing uh, presence and force uh, in the world for freedom. Thank you for listening to today's Bradley Lecture. I'm Wilson, and I surely hope you enjoyed it. Tune in to the AI Podcast channel for more, and be sure to review us and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we'll see you then.